cell phones will stay off the deck, right? I, I, I agree with you there. Not to mention their distraction. Like, I don't want anyone guiding me in who might be texting or doing any other thing than worrying about the plane landing. It seems crazy. You're listening to The Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we've got some interesting helicopter news. Uh, we'll talk about the F-35 and some really big Joby news, and we'll talk about the stock-related uh, implications there. So, Alan, let's jump into it with the F-35 here. They've had issues with lightning strikes and their lightning protection in the past. It looks like uh, they made some upgrades uh, to the gas tanks. And uh, what, what is that going to mean? Are they going to pretty much have like full clearance to you know go go fly through as many thunderstorms as you want now? Or is it kind of like a little cautious rollout of this? No, well, they have a, a nitrogen inerting system in the fuel tanks. Uh, if the they were hit by lightning or if they were hit by small arms fire, uh, what you don't want is to, to kick off and have an explosion in the fuel tank. So they have an inerting system in the tank. And what they've been having problems for the last couple of years of cracks in the plumbing. There's some very thin-walled... Uh, piping that drives that system and feeds the tanks and through no normal vibration and flexing it sounds like some of the there's some fatigue damage on those tubes and they're cracking once the nitrogen uh, rich air tubes are are cracked or penetrated you let oxygen back in so now now your inert tank may not be as inert as you once thought it was and so that's why there's been a, a bunch of uh safety risks with the F-35 and limits on flying in and around lightning until they can get this thing fixed. Well, it sounds like they finally have a fix in place, which is good because that needed to get fixed. And I'm sure it's that's a very complicated aircraft and everything is so compactly jammed into every nook and cranny of it. It's hard to redesign something that complex in that type of aircraft platform it's not a 747 right? it's a fighter aircraft so things seem to be really closely packed together that's that's probably the, the issue you've been dealing with but it, it's good it, you know it's it's it needed to get done they've been working on it for a year plus and it's it's finally uh being resolved good and do the materials come into play because i know you know these smaller jets are so incredibly complex and high tech with crazy materials that you know are classified and um, I mean, does that come into play? Like, would some of these tubes maybe made of, out of something that just maybe reacts differently than they thought or is maybe just less proven over time, maybe? I had read earlier that they were metal tubes, but they were just very thin-walled because you're trying to cut weight out of the aircraft and you're trying to just have minimal systems. And maybe they were just a little too thin or maybe that the vibration characteristics of the aircraft were different than what they had tested for. That'll do it too. You get resonance going on and the masses of the different components may be slightly off and all of a sudden I got this harmonic going on and I got flexing and shaking that I didn't expect. Um, you, you can well imagine on a on a aircraft like the F-35, there's a lot, a lot of engineering goes into it. And it's something that just kind of peaked up that they didn't think was going to happen. Obviously, they had designed for a certain environment and maybe the aircraft's delivering another environment. It's hardly, really hard to tell, but it sounds like it was some sort of aluminum tubing or metal tubing that just fatigued 
And maybe they, and who knows what they did to replace it. I know when some of the aircraft we've worked on, um, there are different techniques to create this tubing and different ways to go about it. And, you know, weight is king, right? Weight is king. So everything has to cut weight. And so you cut it right to the bare edge, which, which, which is what happens. And sometimes you just lose all your margin. They did in this aspect. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but they did. So staying with the F-35, and we had mentioned this, that uh, when we saw the, the F-35C that crashed uh, off a aircraft carrier in the South China Sea recently, you know, there was some footage that were like, that doesn't seem like that should have been leaked out. And the government agreed and five uh, Navy sailors have been charged with, uh, let's see, just unauthorized release of a government um, document, essentially. So this is actually pretty interesting. So there are also some, I guess, sailors who took photos of the plane in the water just before it sank. They were not charged with any crime, but those that took uh, video of the what's called the plat video, which I guess helps the plane correct itself, correct course a little bit as it's about to land, that 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 video was government property essentially because that was yeah, you know had to go through all the different regulations for any image of that video to be released um is that alan does that surprise you that a there were there was a difference in the cell phone video handling versus the plat video handling i i was a little astonished that the the military didn't uh at least do some discipline to the sailors that were taking handheld video of the crash and then publicizing it now you know how that video got out into the real world we may never know we will probably never know but it, it I, 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 I maybe i'm just crazy but i think there would be a security risk of having cell phones everywhere on my ship particularly uh of things like this right uh who's who's taking images of what and where is that going it seems like when you walked onto the ship, you would sort of lose access to those things. Uh, so doesn't it just feel wrong? Like I've never seen mobile phone video of a Chinese aircraft carrier ever. And I, I never will. I would never see one of a Russian aircraft carrier. I would never will. And, I, and you, you just kind of expect U.S. service people who are you know, out there doing a very difficult job to be thinking about what the implications of releasing that video are. Yeah, it's it's just very odd, and the 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 people are getting prosecuted. That's that's not a good situation either. You know, you, you hope that everybody just realizes that was a stupid mistake, and there's some corrective action implemented, and they can move on with their careers and get back on track. I'm not sure that the Navy can do that. Do you think they can just let that go? I don't. I don't think so. Well, I think this whole cell phone issue is pretty. It it should be cut and dry, like you said. I mean, you know, I live out here in D.C. and you can't bump into five people without one of them working or knowing someone who works in a building where they have to leave their cell phone as they walk in. I mean, I, I can think of a handful right now who at least one day a week or multiple days a week, or they always, when they go to the office, they're, you know, you're not in touch with them until they leave, you know, because that's how classified information is. And you, you would think that that's, you know, with these aircraft being so technologically advanced, I mean, they're about to go pull that out of the sea if they haven't already so that no one else, you know, can, can reverse engineer it. So w with that being what the asset is on these aircraft carriers, it does kind of boggle the mind. Like, w why can you just take a video of it on your cell phone? Like, that's all right. It just seems like, Hey, you're going to walk through this gate to get to the, the deck or wherever you're at. 
leave your cell phone in here and grab it on the way out. That seems like a pretty obvious, obvious decision. Cell phones will stay off the deck, right? I, I, I agree with you there. Not to mention they're a distraction. Like I don't want anyone guiding me in who might be texting or doing any other thing than worrying about the plane landing. It seems crazy. It's the whole thing just seems like a mystery. And obviously there's a lot of young service people that are out on ships, 18 year old, 19 year old, uh, that are out doing that hard, hard that job. And sometimes maybe just the brain's not functioning correctly because you see that, sh that aircraft go over board. Your first thoughts shouldn't be to whip out the cell phone and start taking video of it. That should be way, way down on your list of priorities because that has nothing to do with your role in that emergency. And, and that's where I think the discipline can probably come in that they had somewhere to be besides there. Well, moving on to another uh, military initiative, uh, DARPA is at it again, and they've actually just completed a autonomous flight with a Sikorsky Blackhawk helicopter. Um, and it's pretty crazy to see this video of it just flying along with no pilot in there. And those are not small helicopters. Um, Alan, what does this mean? I mean, is this a really surprising thing or is this kind of just like, you know, the next kind of step in some of this, uh, this technology? Next logical step, clearly a lot of capability when you do that. And a lot of, um, uh, conflict environments in which you'd want to have maybe an autonomous or remotely piloted Blackhawk. I, I can think of a lot of places where uh, you need to pick somebody up uh, in a really dangerous spot. And if you lost the helicopter, you lost the helicopter, but you need to send it for the I mean, survival of some soldiers out in the field. And this could make sense. And obviously, the, the point of these exercises is to try it out and to see what the capability really is and to see, like, like the article discussed, they were simulating flying through Manhattan. <laughs> now, I, I, I hope we're never in a situation where we need autonomous Blackhawks flying through the streets of Manhattan. That'd be sort of your worst case nightmare of a, of a, a flight to happen. But, you know, give, give the armed forces uh, some credit here. They're thinking ahead and realizing if they do get into a city situation where they need to be flying Blackhawks to get people in and out, they'll have the capability to do it. Uh, but it is, it, it, Dan, it, you know, it's not necessarily easy to take an older aircraft, modify it like that, and go fly it uh, autonomously. It isn't like the Blackhawk was ever designed for that. And, uh, you know, Sikorsky knows about the control laws that are involved in flying that helicopter. And they have, gosh, I don't know, is it a 40-year-old airplane at least? So they, they know how that aircraft performs. It's just not how, uh, there would have to be a lot of aircraft modifications going on to make that autonomous and I think that's why all the engineering has gone in is how to make it and do it consistent, get it where it works consistently, right? Failure modes are a problem because you don't have a pilot in there to diagnose everything. That's where problems lie. Well, and I'm sure this wasn't designed at all with the Ukraine situation because uh, that obviously just came into fruition a couple of days ago. But that has really, I think, brought into a lot of people's minds that if there was a world war fought today, it's it is within apartment buildings and tanks going down the street. I think that's been a pretty crazy visual thinking that it wouldn't be any different in you like in the U S than it is in Ukraine. Like if they attacked Washington DC, there's not that big of a military base here. So it's going to be fought in the streets amongst all the buildings. And it's just a, a very bizarre thing to think about. Um, that I don't think, especially not people my age, I'm in my mid thirties have ever really considered before that, Back in the day, you know, World War One, World War Two, these were 
I mean, there's no other place to fight a war. You can't just fight a war on military bases, right? That's not how, that's not how it all works, um, even though they talk about trying to spare civilians. But um, so, the, yeah, the idea of flying through Manhattan is kind of like a chilling sentiment, I think, right now with the, the war on Ukraine going on. Absolutely it is, yeah. So moving on to Boeing, uh, the FAA is not going to allow them to certify the 787 Dreamliner until they can get their manufacturing processes up to their standards. Um, Alan, where are they falling short right now? So there's been a lot of uh, uh, quality escapes that has happened at Boeing, and Boeing's identified a lot of them themselves, where composite structure, it sounds like titanium to composite structure hasn't aligned uh, like it should, and it sounds like it's a supplier issue, and there's been... A lot of discussion in the press about the supplier issues and Boeing's oversight of suppliers. But essentially, uh, the FAA has come in and said, until we're confident in the quality system which Boeing has established, we're going to take control of it and we're going to monitor it. And, and that happens more than you think. You know, happening to Boeing doesn't <laughs> it's not a regular occurrence. But in, like on any new aircraft design, as you go through the new aircraft, the the first couple of aircraft will not be um, approved by the company, so to speak, is, is that the FAA is involved intimately in the production side and blessing every single aircraft and writing the paperwork up and overseeing the, the, the your quality system and work. So they're looking at the, the product as it comes down the line. They're, they're making sure that the employees are uh, doing the right steps and following work instructions that the quality people on the floor are, are checking for quality and there's no escapes and they have a system for rework and repairs and making sure that whole system is up and running uh, before the FAA turns you loose to, to, to and just audit you instead of being there day to day to day. Um, you know, I, I think on Boeing's side, obviously didn't really have any choice, but from a consumer side, I I appreciate the fact that the FAA is going to be there for a while and just get Boeing some time to stand this process up again and to figure out what's happening. I, I, don't, I don't know if you watched that latest 737 Netflix movie. It's been on my list, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, I, I watched that over the weekend. And I, I don't know how, like in part, that movie makes me crazy, okay? That it, it doesn't, there's a lot of drawing on emotions, and it's a terrible thing that happened on the 737s and the people that were killed. Absolutely terrible. But if they're trying to identify what some of the risks were inside Boeing, I don't think they did a very good job of it. I think they missed the whole, they missed the whole point. Uh, it wasn't the merger with McDonnell Douglas. They were talking about things that were happening in South Carolina, on the seven, on, but the 737 was never built in South Carolina. What it's just like grabbing at things that are happening at Boeing and then stacking them together in a to create a narrative about things that are happening at Boeing. All right, so things are happening at Boeing right now that need some FA oversight. Totally agree with that. But it's just like this this seven eight seven issue down in, in South Carolina. They have an issue. The FA is stepping in and and doing what they do, and Boeing's going to stand up a uh, a better, well oiled system to catch escapes and to correct them on the line that will take a couple of months and then the FAA will go back to their auditing position again uh, and with the latest changes that happened in the law there's more FAA involvement in companies like Boeing and Textron and all the companies that make airplanes in the United States Gulfstream there'll be more FAA interfaces going on there and I applaud that I think that's totally the right answer I, I think uh 
kind of pulling the FAA away and letting the builders of aircraft have an internal audit system uh, that, that the FAA just monitored from the outside could work, but it has problems. And sometimes as designers, as quality people, as uh, uh, anybody that's involved with the FAA system, you need to have outside opinions come in and to, to kind of give you outside input. And when with the system that they had before, sometimes it didn't happen as much. And I, I always feel grateful that as a DER, I can talk to the FAA. That's one of the things I can do. If I worked inside of an ODA a couple of years ago, I wouldn't, you know, they tell you, you can't, you can't go to the FAA first. You have to go to someone internally first and discuss what's going on. I understand the reasons for that because the FAA didn't want to be bothered with nonsense stuff. But, you know, there are times when you need to get an outside opinion and, you, and it's time to hear from the regulator. Uh, people in my position and uh, around the country need to have that access to the FAA because I think the FAA does provide very valuable service and I appreciate my interfaces with them. So, you know, what's you know tying this back to what's happening on the 787, I'm glad the FAA is more involved. I think that's going to help Boeing and Boeing should be thinking that too because it will. It will. It'll tighten up that system a lot more. It'll find those leaks and it'll close them and stop them. And, and I'm appreciative of that. And, you know, it just... The timing for Boeing's just not good. That's really issue. 737, 787, all this stuff's happening. It doesn't seem to go away. Yeah, I got that. But this is for the this is for better, I think. What do you feel like is the timeline now? Six months. I, I think so. I know I've heard people in the press talking about 2023. I'm like, wow, that's a long time. Now maybe the maybe the manufacturing issues they're having are deeper. And it sounds like they're going to have to go back and bring some airplanes that are actually out in the field right now, bring them back in and repair them. And, and the FAA wants to see those repairs, understand what those repairs are before approving the repairs. They can't just do it internally to Boeing. They got to tell the FAA what's happening. That's cool. That's going to take a longer amount of time. But in terms of production line, unless there's something really wrong with a supplier, and maybe there is, my gut tells me six months is the usual time frame. It's not six weeks. It never is six weeks, <laughs> these kind of things. Six months, maybe a year. Uh, but uh, the 787 will be back. You know, it's not going away. It's a good airplane. It's a good airplane. It'll be back. All right, well, moving on to EVTOLs today. Uh, let's talk about Joby. Obviously, the big news uh, with a lot of hush-hush, un unfortunately, uh, was that one of the uh, two Joby prototypes crashed in recent testing. Alan, what do you know about this crash? It seems like very little. There is very little in the press right now. There was nobody on board. It was autonomously being flown out in, out in Northern California at their flight test facility from... Uh, transponder data it looks like it was doing some sort of high-speed flights and then had a problem what that problem is no one knows Joby's not saying Joby's saying uh in some press that they are not allowed to say okay i don't know if that's the case now i want you to picture the difference between the f-35 falling off the carrier and all those images we had and Joby crashing into the ground in nor in northern california the heart of Silicon Valley, where everybody has a cell phone <laughs> and zero coming out. Contrast those two together and go, okay, right? You know, Joby has clamped down on what information is going to come out of there. We haven't seen any pictures of the, of the damaged aircraft at all. Uh, we're not sure what the, what the issue is. 
there's I, I've seen a lot of comments about it, and Dan, you probably see some of these too, uh, which said, oh, oh, no, this is normal. The crash is normal. Bull crap. Crashes are not normal. You don't go into any flight test situation thinking that the aircraft's going to fall out of the sky, whether it has a person in it or not. That never happens. So either they had some sort of maintenance issue or fatigue issue or some of the materials failed or a design issue, like the design margin they thought they had wasn't right. What's one of those? Now, does that set back the program? Heck yeah, it does. There's no way it won't. Because the first thing you do in any sort of crash or situation or safety risk situation is that you have a stand down, right? Everybody just stop. Stop what we're doing. Document what we have. Control what just happened. Go back and start looking and digging through the data to see if we could have picked this up earlier and didn't. Sometimes you could have. Go back and see if there's some sort of human intervention or some weird thing that happened and identify the root cause. And that takes time. Again, I go back to my six-month thing. It's going to take six months to a year for them to really figure that out. Now, they may have a hint already, not say that they don't, of what's going on, but will it have design implications? Probably, yeah. Sure it will. And as this, if, from the outside world perspective, I'm never sure being quiet is the right answer, right? If it was just some crazy series of events, like they hit a bird, could have happened, right? Hit an eagle, hit a condor, something, something, something big, and it, it damaged the aircraft enough where it couldn't sustain flight. Great, you know, I think that's important to say that. Uh, if it was some weird failure mode that they hadn't considered, it's probably still okay to talk about it. But the quiet part is the worrisome part. Uh, you you're in a, in a damage control mode even though it's a flight test aircraft even though flight test aircraft in theory can fall out of the sky i'm not uh, pr wise i'm not sure that's a good idea and i've watched a lot of accidents happen and i've seen sort of how they handle the different prs and i'm not sure this is the right approach because they're joby's in a very funky space right i mean they're like a venture like a northern california silicon valley uh, startup with a billion dollars and stock means everything to them i'm sure and dan what's the stock price at like four or five dollars right now as we speak it's like yeah okay so it's roughly half of what the spac list price was uh that's a 50 that, that's big you don't want to be in that situation and a crash doesn't help anybody and it doesn't help the industry either until we all understand what happened maybe there's some weird uh, flight mode oscillation because of all the props or something that we don't understand. You know, getting that information out helps the industry. It's sort of like the Tesla thing, right? You know, having problems moves the industry ahead. And Tesla's been very vocal and SpaceX has been very vocal about crashes and accidents about what's going on. And maybe Joby ought to take part of that knowledge from Elon and implement it here. Yeah, as far as the stock goes, I'm not sure what the typical expectancy of a, of a SPAC is because if you look at a lot of SPAC offerings, yeah, they, they're offered at $10 a share, you know, when they're initially offered, but a lot of them seem to just sort of trickle down for a little while and then find like their little happy spot where that's where maybe what it's, you know, the, obviously what the stock market's sort of valuing it at. And I'm not sure with SPACs like Joby, how to tie their value when they're not bringing any, any revenue. So you know, should they be at 10? Should they be at five? Should they be at $15 a share? 
I think it's hard to say when there's no revenue. It's all just speculation, right, on the future. So it had dropped as low as like three three sixty a share um, earlier this month or, early, or in early February, and then it rocketed up. So you know, up to five dollars, which is a, obviously like a what forty percent increase, sixty percent increase. Mm, it's good. It's a decent recovery, right? Pe- people were buying on the dip, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, if you could have got at ten six months ago now you're getting a three so you're going to get buyers in that marketplace i think because there's a lot of good press about it in silicon valley there's a lot of good words being spoken by a lot of credible people and and that helps joby clearly helps joby where other aircraft development companies don't have that and so you're going to see that sort of bounce back it's sort of like the e-hang situation i think (laughs) weirdly similar I, you know, what happens going forward? You, you know, Joby has to, uh, you know, has to maintain stock price, right? You, you need to do that, but also figure out what's going on engineering wise and get something resolved. Because they have another aircraft that's just like the first one, or at least relatively close. Have they stopped flying that one? I I hope so. Right? They should until they figure out what's going on. Yeah, there's there's, there's a lot of homework here, and it's it's definitely going to set them back. It's 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 not a small issue, not at all. Well, moving on to our last topic for today, uh, there's an interesting article in the aircurrent.com uh, about just the overall safety debate, debate between uh, not only flying cars, flying air taxis, EVTOLs, whatever you want to call them, uh, but also self-driving cars, because self-driving cars are obviously a lot closer to um, you know real world, and of course, Tesla has, they share their views of how close they are to um, you know, full self-driving, which seems always like they're, you know, saying all oh, the goal, the goalposts are here, but then they seem like they're not even close to the point where it seems misleading. Um, and you know, some AI books that I've read, uh, kind of explain that the self-driving problem is actually a really, really hard one because there's so many variables that humans, humans understand that training an AI to understand that just the same is actually really, really difficult. Um, humans are actually really, really smart, even though we will text while we're driving. Um, Alan, I mean, you know, the article kind of compares and contrasts the, the safety debate there and really the, the overall picture isn't that good for right now that we're probably a little bit farther away. What's your take on the autonomous situation? Yeah. And, and Dan, I think you really highlighted the point that there's a general feeling in that removing the human from the decision loop makes everything safer. But the data does not indicate that yet, that having the human interface in there is still a big deal. The uh, the one quote I remember from this article was talking about in 20% of the flights, the pilots react or correct a safety situation. That's a lot of correction, <laughs> airplane correction, right? Uh, and removing the pilot in those 20% cases could be a, a bigger issue. And, uh, the, you know, the, the question is, I think, can you do a better job autonomously eventually versus having a human in a loop? Maybe, right? Um, as we have tried to remove humans from the loop slowly over time, Airbus and Boeing have done it to different levels of effect. We're, we're learning more about the way aircraft perform we're learning more about the way humans perform. And 
uh, on some level, and dr driving is different than flying an airplane, right? There's very little training requirements to drive an air to drive to drive a car. There just isn't, right? You, you pass an eye test. Yeah, sixteen-year-olds do it. Yeah, right. And their brains are not fully developed, and off they go at eighty miles an hour. Yeah, we we allow that, uh, but pilots pilots have a lot more training involved and, and i think that's that's the difference here now the question and, and the complexity of aircraft are obviously much higher than cars right car stops running there's really no safety implication there right? you just pull off to the side of the road you can't do that at thirty thousand feet that's where you know the autonomous it's going to be a longer cycle i think on aircraft and there are a couple of companies really pushing the boundaries here right um uh, the the kitty hawk group with heaviside are really pushing autonomous. WISC is really pushing autonomous. In fact, they are setting themselves apart to be autonomous only. They're not even going to deal with having pilots in them at all. And I wonder how that's going at times because it is a very difficult problem because you don't re realize how many things pilots actually correct during a flight and how many things systems they can be interfacing with to, to, to make corrective action in. I, that's the hard part and maybe maybe we have this really sort of buck rogers opinion of the world or, or, or of what what the world needs to look like uh, but the reality is engineering wise it's a really hard and difficult thing to do and dan you've watched tesla with the vision system that musk is proposing and i heard musk is going to remove the radar out of the cars altogether in the next year or two they're going to completely vision right but it's taking them 10 years of software development, hardware development to get a car to go down the road without crashing into something. It's not easy. And I don't see uh, an aircraft company devoting that amount of time to it. M maybe, maybe it does make sense. I, I just don't see the, the return on investment being there. You, you see, see what I'm saying? Yeah, well, like we talked about with these, uh, what was it, the really large cargo um proposal that we we're discussing in the last episode you know is it really that big of a cost savings to take the pilot out of a transatlantic cargo flight probably not right no so it's just probably not worth it but yeah so you wonder here don't you wonder right and if if the one thing that could be autonomous it's not are cargo ships it seems like the world's slowest moving doesn't need a lot of interfaces can't really run into much besides another ship or an iceberg i guess <laughs> kind of thing and yet they're not autonomous at all and it it just kind of begs the question of what if we haven't done the simple things why are we going to the hardest things first maybe we figure out how to make a you know a tugboat or a cargo ship run without a crew before we decide to put you know make a 747 do that yeah that's a good question yeah isn't that odd like we, we we take on the toughest engineering challenges first instead of kind of gradually building into it that's where i would go first right i would do something that's simple and then work my way up to it but you know engineers love a challenge and, and it's cool so given those two factors they love a challenge and it's cool that's the direction the engineers are going to go until someone tells them to stop it's a crazy world well, on that note, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for, for listening wherever you are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. Be sure to leave us a review, subscribe to the show, share it with a friend, and we'll see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. 
If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardarrow.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.